Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Welcome back to another edition of the Internet's Most Dangerous Tottenham Hotspur Podcast. It's Wheeler Dealer Radio. We're here to talk about an exciting draw against Chelsea from this past weekend and various and sundry other topics. But before we start that, I want to remind you to follow us on our new Twitter feed. That's WDR Podcast, as in Wheeler Dealer Radio, WDR Podcast on Twitter.com. Also, don't forget to leave us a five-star review on iTunes so we can eventually monetize this podcast for our own ill-begotten uh, joy. And on that note, it's time to move on. I am joined today by Ben Daniels and Brian Ashlock to talk about this thrilling just Mourinho ball draw against Chelsea. Brian, is this, uh, is, this, is this good what we expected from Mourinho, bad what we expected from Mourinho, or just what we expected from Mourinho? Uh, I think it's... I don't think it's the good version. I think the City game was probably the good version, like what we expected from Mourinho. And this was just kind of middle of the road. Kind of eh. like, yeah, like if you talk about Mourinho ball, this is kind of what you think of. Um, it, It was not a very interesting attacking performance, but it was pretty solid defensively. And we got lucky on a few occasions. Um, that helped. And, you know, I, we also got some great Jose quotes after the game. Um, so, you know, if anything, that part of it elevates it to maybe being on the cusp of being good Jose. The, the post-game stuff I thought was very fun. A- after the game, really jumping ahead here. Mourinho is interviewed by the um, reporter, and, and he's like, I am... You know, I am happy with this because I am not happy with the performance, but my team is not happy, and I am happy about that. And it was the most, like, you know he had rehearsed that in the mirror before the match. Like, this is something he'd been thinking about saying for a while. It it felt so, like, you could just see the gears turning, and it was so calculated. It was such, like, peak Mourinho performance art that, I, I don't know if it was bad, but it was funny. It was amusing, at least. Yeah, I, I have a hard time kind of assessing how good this game and performance actually was. Like, on the one hand, I think there's some important context. We have beaten Chelsea at Stamford Bridge precisely one time since 1990. Um, and that came a couple of years ago under Pochettino. And, you know, in that context, a, a draw against Chelsea away from home is, is good. You know, they're historically a pretty good team. They're a team we struggle with. There's a team we have a big rivalry with. Um, and they're a team where you just haven't been very lucky well, against. And think think uh, about uh, how we played against them twice last year under Mourinho. Not very well. Right. Um, you know, that said, I'm not really sure what a home or an away game means in a fanless pandemic environment. Like, how, how much does playing at somebody else's stadium, you know, really, really weigh on you? Well, especially when it's in the same city. Right, exactly. It's like you don't you're not traveling. There's no fans there that are like getting on your back. It's like there's not pressure from a home crowd. 
you know, on the referee to like give decisions one way or the other. I don't know. So I guess my assessment of the context is, uh, but Chelsea are, are one of the better teams in the league this year. And to walk away from a game like that with a draw is great. And especially on the back of the city performance, you know, getting through both of these games with four points out of six is very respectable. Well, and a draw, I don't, Ben, you might disagree with me, Ben or Brian, whoever wants to take this, you might disagree with me. Well, I think there were probably on balance, I think Chelsea probably had a little bit more attacking verve in this match than we did. This was certainly not a draw where it felt like we were hanging on by the skin of our teeth. I mean, this was, I thought, a fairly even match. I don't think we were, get, this wasn't like something we were getting our asses kicked up and down the field and we were lucky to sort of get away with one, uh, maybe, even if maybe... You know, we got a little fortunate here or there. This Again, this comes back to what, you know, I think a big difference between this year and last year is for me, which is, you know, it feels like we're executing a plan. And even if maybe we're not executing the plan I'd like to see or executing as well as I would like to see it, it doesn't it doesn't feel like we're getting wildly outcoached and we're just lucky to get away with it. I, I think that's right. I think my problem is with, with the plan. Um, you know, the... F- all that context aside, once once the game kicks off and you see the, how the how the shape of the game is going, I think all that stuff kind of flies out the window. And you got to look at the ninety minutes that we played. And the first half, I feel like we you know we set up to defend deep, to counterattack, and do the kind of Jose thing that he does in a big game. Um, and unlike in the Man City game, we didn't get that that goal um, to kind of like shake things up a bit. Well, I but thought Chelsea I think- also was a lot more cautious than City. They were. I mean, you know, and Jose talked about it in the press conference afterwards. You know, he was saying that Chelsea normally attack with, with their fullbacks. You know, Reese James and Ben Shilwell tend to get up the pitch and, and provide a lot in the final third. And Lampard kept both of them sitting at home. And they basically had a five-man defense. Um, or, sorry, a full, full four-man defense um, sitting back. And, you know, we were prepared to exploit Chelsea's normal game plan. And Chelsea didn't play their normal game plan. Um, and that, I think, is what frustrates me, is that having not made the breakthrough in the first half, but being, I think, pretty well on top, the second half we came out and we just said, yeah, all right, a point of Stamford Bridge is pretty good. And that that's kind of where I'm, like, frustrated with this because I think that game was there for the taking. I think we gave Chelsea too much respect. You know, they're one of the better teams in the league this year, but, like, nobody in the league is, is that good, ourselves included. Like, but we're as good as anybody. So I think seeing the way that game went, like I would have loved to see us go for the jugular. Well, Brian, this is, I mean, you look at Mourinho, and I think this is, and this might not necessarily be a bad thing if what you care about is results, but Mourinho is risk-averse, and he is going to look at a game like this, probably going the way it was, and if, well, Chelsea aren't going to do that, he's probably going to sort of lean towards the option that's more likely to get us a point than the option that might cost us you know, or give Chelsea three points. So, I mean, what do you think of that? Is, is that, I mean, I, I guess it doesn't necessarily do as entertaining matches, but it, it might be a more valid strategy if we're actually in a title race. Yeah. And I think it makes a modicum of sense when you consider, you know, this is an away game against Chelsea. Um, I, I know Ben said, you know, what does an, what does an away game even mean right now? But presumably we have a home game, against Chelsea that, you know, may have fans at it, you know, later on in the season, like sometime in whatever it is, March or April. Um, So, you know, 
I think if you're if you're looking at it that way, and con- especially considering the run of matches that we have coming up with, you know, Arsenal and Liverpool and um, and Leicester, uh, I I guess it makes sense. Um, I certainly would have liked to have seen you know another attacking sub or an earlier attacking sub, whether that was bringing Vinicius on or someone that's not Lucas Mora. Even Lucas Mora, I thought. Like, swap him out for Vergvine in the 75th minute. Let him run at some tired legs, you know. Yeah. I mean, so, so you know, I thought the Ben Davies sub, I thought, was, you know, that that is, like, prototypical Mourinho. Like, all right, you know, we've made it this far. Let's just make sure that nothing dumb happens. And I don't like that. You know, like, look, I like winning matches. And, like, if you're up 1-0 at that point, like, I'm fine with that. But... I, sh- I also think that we should be, you know, adventurous in these games where, you know, we we can have an opportunity to win the match if you just put on Gareth Bale or you put on Vinicius or you, even if it's Lucas Mora, like just some other threat and get them on the pitch to maybe do something. Right. And then, I mean, honestly, the Ben Davis stuff, it's like, I'm fine settling for a point in the 90th minute. I'm not fine settling for a point in like, at halftime. And that's kind of where it breaks down for me. Well, you know, oh. we had the planned sub for Lo Celso with Ndombele, like we do every match at 60 minutes. But between then and after then, we had a whole stretch of the match where we just sat there and hoped Chelsea didn't score. Um, you know, if you see, like, the the XG chart of, like, our, our chances over the course of the game, um, I think Wendy tweeted this, like, we literally flatlined around halftime. We just stopped even trying to take shots. And that, to me, I think is a little unacceptable in a game that we were very much in. And, you know, we created a couple chances or dangerous situations late in the match that aren't shown on that chart. But the chart does roughly tell the story of the match in terms of we were not as creative as we were earlier. I think for me where it kind of breaks down a little bit is like, I'm, and I know that like where it is in the schedule doesn't matter as much. I'm kind of fine. I'm more fine with this approach later in the season than I am right. Like, now's the time to take some risks. You know, like, let's see if we can win that game at a certain point. Let's put on some slightly more attacking subs. Let's get a little adventurous. Let's just tell Hunming Sun to, like, fucking shoot the football. <laughs> um, you know, I don't well, know. I mean, you know, look, in fairness, Chelsea weren't particularly adventurous either. Uh, I mean, I know they, I know they came out and they did, you know, get a little bit on top in the second half. But, like, you know... In the, you know, from the 75th minute on, like, Lampard is just making like-for-like substitutions up top. Like, he's not throwing on, um, you know, Giroud to play with Abraham and Werner and and Ziyech. He's not bringing on, you know, Pulisic in, in addition to them and pulling off, like, Mount or Kovacic. Like, you know, he, he didn't really push... Jose to get out of his game plan with his substitutions either. And so, you know, I I think both teams, while, you know, if you listen to Lampard after the game, he's not happy with, you know, the the draw. I I think both managers were probably kind of content with, you know, the stalemate based on how they came into the game. It was coward's football. (laughs) That's what it comes down to. No one wanted to lose. They were more afraid of losing than they wanted to win. And... Like, I think that's it for me, Greg, is at this stage in the season, the possibility of three points gained means more than, I think, the risk of one point dropped. You know, it'd be one thing if, like, Chelsea and Spurs were, like, 
far ahead, neck and neck, and you really can't afford to cede points to your title, direct title challenger. But like, they're not, you know, Liverpool is obviously, honestly like the real threat for the title. So like if Chelsea were to take home three points, it wouldn't be the end of the world for our title chances because we still have, you know, another team out there who is just as likely a title contender as, as either of us. So yeah, I don't know. I, and even though you're right, Brian, Chelsea's subs were Pulisic for Werner, Giroud for Tammy, you know, very like for like. At least they were just bringing on fresh legs and taking the impetus to, like, just try to come at us. But I think it's worth considering, you look at this match, and, you know, we went to Chelsea, which, again, who knows what the fucking away fixture means this season, but we went to Chelsea, who have been playing pretty well this year, and they were scared of us, and... I think there's a that's a credit to Spurs. I mean, you know, they looked at I think probably our broader season, but especially what we did to City last week. And you know, they didn't just decide to like throw a man on for some for to like watch Regulon or something. Like, I mean, they were like, I mean, Chelsea's number one Lampard can say what he wants. Chelsea's number one goal is a neuter our counterattack, and everything else was sort of below that on their priority list. And I think. Again, I sort of talked about this earlier in the podcast that I've been talking about the last few weeks. That's kind of what I find most encouraging about Spurs this year is there's a plan and we're implementing it. And thus far, it's worked really well. I think the danger is against sort of teams that aren't going to attack us as much for one reason or another. We need to come up with a plan B or at least some other options we can explore. Um, You know, now I I think other teams are going to have a hard time doing what Chelsea did to us, but... You know, it's it's still a good problem to have, and I do think it's a sign of legitimate progress for this team. I mean, I was a little bit concerned by by Chelsea's ability to really kind of snuff out our counterattack. And, you know, you've taken into consideration they have Thiago Silva, who is still one of the best defenders in the world. They have N'Golo Conte, um, you know, and they t- kept their fullbacks um, back for large portions of the game. But I just didn't really feel like any of our attackers – did much of anything. You know, weirdly, um, I'd say Bergvine is the guy who I felt like. I mean, I think the chance of the match was that. And I don't even think, you know, the only reason I'm being critical of this is because there weren't that many chances in the match. But that, that shot he had very early on that, you know, kind of went over the bar. I mean, wasn't a bad chance. was good creation. I, mean, I thought we were going to get a lot more of that than we did in the match. But Yeah, and I thought Bergwijn put in a pretty good shift. I still just, you know, like I've said about him before, he feels a lot like Eric Lamella at Spurs, you know, a few seasons ago where he's just pressing. He takes too many touches. He dribbles into cul-de-sacs. Like, you know, there were so many times in the box or around the box where he took an extra touch or two, and it's just like, ah, you need to either shoot that or get it off your foot or something. If chances are going to be at this kind of a premium, he either needs to create more or do better with the ones he does get. Right. Right. I I think – Go ahead. I was just saying, yeah, once again, it's Chelsea very much were happy to let Bergvine take shots because they knew that our danger comes from Harry Kane and Hungman's son, and they set out to stop them from doing anything. And if Bergvine got free as a consequence, like that was an acceptable risk that they were willing to take. And he, I, I like him, and I, and I think he's shown a lot over the last two weeks to be very encouraged by, but he's just not on that level right now. And so when when you have a team that is able to stop our, our twin Colossus attack of, of Kane and Son, um, you need to have that third attacker who's just a little bit more dangerous than Bergvine is. We'll, we'll talk about um, we'll talk about Delhi in a second, but I thought 
this was something that made me, I, I was thinking of this, of Bergvine when I was thinking about how Delhi didn't start, which is, you know, it doesn't bother me that City or Chelsea are not the teams that, like, they tried to sort of get Delhi reintegrated for. Like, I, I understand why you might want to wait for us to play a bit more of a cupcake to, you know, let Delhi sort of, especially if we're trying to sort of adjust how he plays in the team, which on the one hand makes me think that fact that Bergvine's managed to have two decent games is a little more impressive, but also I'm very interested to see how Bergvine plays against, you know, I don't know, West Crystal Palace. Whoever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like who, who, the next sort of tomato can that we get to play. And I don't know. It's, it's on the one hand, it's encouraging that what he's done the last two weeks, especially given how he played before that. On the other hand, I mean, he needs to be more clinical or at least more productive one way or another. Well, and it was interesting because, you know, there were times where our front three had basically rotated such that Bergvine was our furthest forward and was kind of playing as a center forward. And and Kane was dropping into the 10 spaces and then Sun was on either flank. And it's just really not a good use of Bergvine's skills. Like, I understand that he's got a low center of gravity. He's probably very strong, but it's just like him isolated against Zuma or... Excuse me, against Thiago Silva, just wasn't a good matchup for us, and uh, it that really killed off a lot of potential counterattacks. Yeah, I do think some of that was in response to how well Chelsea defended Kane and Son. I mean, Serge Aurier had more shots than both of them combined. And Serge so Aurier think, might have the best th- chance of the match, honestly. So, but I think you know when you see that rotation, it's not so much necessarily like we're expecting Bergvine to like lead the line so much as, okay, they're paying so much attention to Kane and son. Let's see if we can draw these guys out of position and let Bergvine maybe sneak in into that space that Kane has vacated and maybe pulled the defender with him. It didn't happen. Chelsea were very disciplined and played a very good game. Um, but I think, I think that idea at least makes sense, even though Bergvine wasn't quite capable of executing it. Yeah. And, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I don't disagree with the premise or, or, or what was happening there, but I think, if you saw that that was a thing that was happening, then a sub of Vinicius for Bergvine makes a yep. little bit of sense because you say, all right, now you are going to be you know, attacking from the flank slash sometimes rotated up to being isolated with one of the central defenders while Kane and Son move between the lines and try to find space. I, you know, Again, I'm not trying to say anything bad about Bergvine. I thought he put in a pretty good performance. I thought he was very encouraging. Um, but I, I felt like the team in general could have done different things with how we attack Chelsea, especially in the latter part of the match. Yeah. And so I, to just take a step back, because I know we ten, have a tendency to maybe sound negative with stuff like this, and we've talked a lot about our, our hypothetical fantasy version of how this match might have gone. Accepting the premise of Jose played this match the way he did, I thought we did a very good job. You know, Other than like some of the limitations in our attack being a little sharper, um, defensively, we barely put a foot wrong. Like Joe Rodon had, I thought, a pretty assured debut. He had a couple, a couple shaky moments. That that late header back to Larice that Giroud got in on was very scary. But by and large, I thought our back four did their jobs very effectively. Hoiberg was again everywhere. You know, we Chelsea like again. We were not on top for the second half, but 
that didn't mean Chelsea was like killing yeah, I, Chelsea didn't create anything. I, I didn't feel like I was did living in ter- I didn't feel like I was living in terror, which I think is a real credit to that defense. I think let's talk about Rodon for a second because I thought he was like not I mean, you know, he didn't look like the next Ledley King right away, but like for a guy in his first match, which was probably on relatively short notice, I thought he looked pretty good. He had two sort of howlers in the match, one of which Tammy Abraham's is offside for, so who gives a shit? Like, yeah, it didn't matter anyway. Um, but yeah, I thought he did, I thought he, you know, honestly, I thought he did a really good job keeping Abraham quiet and not giving him, I mean, Abraham's best chance was when he was sort of falling over ass backwards and on a set piece, or I think it was a set piece. But, uh, you know, I thought he had a really good match. And for a guy so young in his first Premier League match, I think it's all very excusable, the mistakes he did have. I mean, I think you got to feel good about him being in our back four in the in the near future, I would imagine. Yeah, I agree. I think I think like you guys said, he just had those couple moments um, where whether it was nerves or or whatever that that he had a couple of bad moments, and I I think he did let Abraham get across him on a couple of those crosses from Reese James, but you know. Abraham either didn't play him right or, you know, Abraham's a good enough forward that he's going to do that to defenders. And so you can forgive a little bit of that. But, you know, the thing I liked about Rodon was he looked confident on the ball. And I know Jose isn't like a play it out of the back, like short kicks type of thing, type of manager. But I I like that if the ball gets played back to Rodon, I wasn't like, ah, okay, please don't screw this up. Um, you know, aside from that back header to Larice that he did screw up, but you know, like when the ball's at his feet, I, I felt like he was fine and he looked calm on the ball. He distributed well to Hoiberg and to the fullbacks. Uh, you know, I, I think he might be a pretty good player. Yeah. He didn't look like he was going to get like pressed into making a mistake. He looked comfortable with the ball at his feet you know, with, with guys in his face. Um, I was also very impressed, aside from those two Tammy Abraham chances where he kind of got lost on the cross, um, just defending aerially in space, I was I thought he lived up to the building. Yeah. I think that was one of the things we'd heard about him, was that he's very tall, very strong in the air. Um, and I thought he did a very good job just sort of reading flights of balls and positioning himself to, like, cut out chances before they could become dangerous. Um, in a way that Davison Sanchez has really, really been bad with uh, over the last few years, and so that to me was, like, I think, a big, a big improvement. Which is um, interesting because I don't think he's got. Maybe I'm incorrect because I haven't seen them standing next to each other, but I don't think he's got much on Sanchez in terms of height. Maybe a little bit of muscle mass, but I mean, Sanchez I mean, he's is six four. I mean, Sanchez isn't tiny though. I mean, you know, I, mean, I was like Sanchez is six two and Rodon six. Yeah, I mean. He he did. I thought big lad. I was very impressed with the way he handled, like like you said, Ben, the way he was tracking balls. He had a couple really nice, sort of keeping the ball from getting to the Abraham. Uh, you know, a couple really nice headers at, out of the box. I mean, I mean, he looks like a guy who needs to play a couple cup matches and play a couple, you know, Crystal Palaces, as we were saying earlier. Um, you know, he looks like a guy who could really benefit from a couple of those games. But you got you got to feel good about. Him after that. Yeah, it's a real shame he's not registered for the Europa League because mm-hmm. it would be really nice to be able to get him some minutes there. Well, but I, I think we'll be able to ro- uh, register him once the knockouts start. Because um, I usually there's 
the flexibility to add or drop players, you know, once the January window comes around. So we'll, we should be able to register him for January. But yeah, it sucks that he can't play these these last couple of Europa League matches. Just in time to play Mauricio Pochettino's Real Madrid, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, the the one defensive thing that I saw in this match that I actually didn't like, and I wanted to hear your guys' thoughts about, were was uh, Regulon and. Chelsea did a really good job of exploiting um, Ziyech cutting in from that that left side and and Regulon tracking him and then overlapping with Reese James. And that, especially when we had Bergvine rotated up to kind of play as a center forward and no one really supporting Regulon on that flank other than, you know, Hoybeard kind of still being in the midfield spaces – that that overlap really killed us, and I I really wonder if other teams are going to start doing that. Where because we keep one of our one at least one of our wings so high up the pitch, if they're going to start, you know, killing us with overlapping fullbacks, especially if Arsenal is going to start trying to put in thirty three crosses a game. <laughs> I, I mean, I thought Hoybier did a very very good job tracking back into that space. Um, I, I, there was a moment, I think, when, when Reese played in Ziesch and Hoybjerg just followed the run smartly, shepherded him out uh, into a not dangerous area, won the ball and turned it back into possession. And yeah, that wasn't like the whole game. Like you're right, Reese James got free and put in a few cro- crosses um, in a way that were more dangerous. Um, I think some of that is just down to like the weird tactical necessities of this game. Like you said, with Bergvine shuttling up for up front and not having that extra body um, on the wing. I don't know. I'm, I, think, I'm not... I think some of it was just pick your poison. And I think Spurs made taking Ziyech out of the game their number one priority. And I think they, frankly, between especially Regulon and Hoiberg, I thought they did a really good job of that. I mean, he was fairly quiet all match. And, I, you know, it's not ideal and maybe you should come up with a better strategy in general, but... If you have to pick between him and Reese James, I'd rather take my chances with Reese James. Exactly. I'd much rather have Reese James crossing the ball than Ziesh getting in behind and like doing something creative. Yeah, I, also I mean, think, ultimately, we can't argue with the results. Like it right. worked. I also think you're not likely to play a lot of teams where they have a fullback as good as Reese James, um, and you're not going to have a situation as often where we're asking Regulon to sit deep. You know, Regulon didn't really get the opportunity to keep the opposing fullback honest because he wasn't really allowed to venture forward the way that we, you know, know he's very good at. And I think in different circumstances, he's going to pin that opposition fullback way more than we're going to have to worry about how, how is he able to handle marking two or three guys in transition and and trading off um, who he's covering. So I think you're right that it's concerned. He isn't a defense first fullback, but I, I, think between the last two games i mean you know after winning a ham and then keeping a shutout here um he's showing me a lot more defensive capability than that i was expecting from him maybe i'm i'm just like i don't know i i really like sergio a lot and i'm predisposed to maybe thinking positive things about him but i think it's actually kind of exciting that he's as good as he is and clearly still has room to grow and i mean maybe i don't think he's ever going to be a sort of shutdown Shut down fullback. Um, I don't think he's ever going to be a defensive first fullback, but I, I don't know. I think just over the course of the year, I think we've seen him adapt in ways that make me really encouraged about 
what we'll see from him in the future when Mauricio Pochettino fails to lure, lure him back to Madrid. So, I don't know. Again, I, I continue to be very encouraged by Sergio, even though there's certainly issues with his game that we need to be aware of. Yeah. And so I, we touched on this earlier, but I think the other fullback is really the guy we should be talking about. Uh, Serge Aurier had one of his best performances I think I've seen for Spurs. And that includes a game that he wasn't like an incredibly dangerous attacker and wasn't, you know, creating a lot of chances and creating a ton of assists. Um, just defensively, I was wildly impressed. With yeah, I think or, or it is... I don't know if it's down to Mourinho or what, but it is hard not to be extremely impressed with Aurier sort of turning around this year, especially if he wanted out of Spurs. I, I think we're at the point now where, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'd be bothered if we offered him an extension. Like, I mean, maybe I'd prefer us to go find another younger, better, like, guy who's less prone to doing dumb shit, and I'm sure that's going to become an issue with him later in the season, but... It's hard to argue with the results we've seen so far. I mean, he was very, very good on Sunday. Yeah, my concern is that he'll be 28 in a couple weeks, but... God, seriously? I thought he was like 26 or something, but okay. Yeah. I mean... That's what happens when you get those, like, post-hype players. They're just a little older than... Then their development curve. But he's not physically a, show. I mean, again, he'll he'll show it the, yeah. the second we sign to the extension. But I mean, he's still. I mean, he's still a monster in terms of getting up and down the field. Remember last season when we were ready to be done with him? Last season. Remember the last four seasons we were ready to be done with him? Like however long he's been here. Yeah, I mean the thing is, you know, remember in the All or Nothing documentary when Jose was like, "I don't trust you not to make a stupid mistake and fuck us," and you know. The existence of Musa Suzuka on the pitch is a testament to that lack of trust. Still, I mean, his sole job still is to just sort of help cover in that space. It is, is maybe it, slightly it is unfair in the, in just as bad. I understand there's more evidence for that going back the last few games. I, I disagree with it. I wish we tried something else. I understand having him Sissoko out there to be like you are there to help Serge deal with Timo Werner, and I I. I, I wish we'd come up with another way to sort of address that, but at the same time, I don't think that is a slight on Aurier. I think that is think, about Werner being incredibly dangerous. I think it's both. I mean, in, if this was like for this match, you're like, Aurier need, needs some help against Timo Werner, then it would be one thing. But it's like, it's it's been a consistent theme yes, of the season. You're, you're, and you're it's not increasingly wrong clear to me that Aurier does not need a babysitter. He does not need that minder. And, you know, maybe mentally having that security blanket has helped him. I don't know. And, you know, maybe he takes Suzoko away. And even if he's not doing much defending, just the fact that Aurier knows he's there makes him play with more confidence. I don't know. I'm not in the dressing room. But in terms of the performances on the pitch, Suzoko is not doing very much defensively. Aurier is doing a lot defensively. And Aurier was also doing the lion's share of the attacking from fullback this match. Uh, and Suzoko is doing no attacking. Um, and, you know, and when he did, he was turning the ball over with a degree that is frankly uncharacteristic of him. Um, you know, he'd gotten into a place where he was like making only safe five yard passes and walking away from a match with 95% pass completion. And you're like, okay, fine. This isn't acceptable use of Suzuko. Uh, and this match, he had like a 68% pass completion. He was like chucking long balls all day that went nowhere. It was just uh, even turning over simple passes. He just was not valuable really in either phase of play. 
given how good Aurier was and how much better maybe another midfielder might be. Um, I'm sorry to have turned a, a praising Aurier no, no, no. into a shit against the Soko. But that's what we do. It's what we do. Yeah. The thing that I find very interesting, or like, frustrating is not the right word, but I understand why we're not getting more, we're not getting LaCelso and Ndombele on the pitch at the same time. Like, I think it's a health issue. And I think he's trying to keep them fit. I think it is. Why are we telling is. ourselves that story until 2025? That's so fine. Now I believe Maybe it. <laughs> it'll turn out to be true. What, but what I do think about that, I think that is only slightly less defensively sound than having Sissoko out there. I don't think, and I think you could see that in this match. I think LaCelso is a very assured midfielder, or can be. And I don't think, and he's also willing to do that sort of defensive scut. Like, it's why I think Gareth Bale wasn't on the pitch. I think they didn't trust or think he could accomplish the sort of, like, defensive work that a guy like Sissoko is expected to do. I think LaCelso is both capable and willing to do all of that work. So I think you can have, I think you can have him out there, and I don't think it would with Ndombele, and it wouldn't adversely impact our defensive solidity to the degree, to the degree that it, where it would be a problem in terms of offsetting what he offers offensively. Right. The thing about Suzuko is like he is not N'Golo Kante. He is not like a consummate defensive midfielder, putting in tackles, winning interceptions. Like he's not a ball winning defensive midfielder. He's a very good athlete who is willing to work hard. And like, that's kind of the limits of his defensive contribution, which is often valuable to just have a guy who is willing to run and do thankless tasks all day. But like Giovanni Lo Celso has played for PSG, not really for Batiste, but for us, an actual defensive midfielder role and like done the job you know, maybe I had a degree that Hoiberg is doing for us or, or uh, of Victor Wanyama, but like is actually capable of doing like those defensive actions in midfield where he's defending, not just running around and pressing and, you know, being an athlete. So we're not but, losing a lot with Sotoko out is what I'm saying. But we still have the best defense in the league. We do. It's worth Which remembering is... that. Which is really weird, right? Like, I, I think that happened, like, uh, for one of the Pochettino seasons. Like, early in the season, we had the best defense in the league. But, like, for all the complaining we've done about, you know, Mourinho tactics or whatever, we've got the best goal differential. We've got the second most goals scored in the league, the least goals against. Like, and I know that, you know, that's obviously skewed by six goals against United. Um, but... We're doing pretty good, right? We're in first place. That's good. I think, like, look, I, I think Liverpool's the team to beat. I think Liverpool's going to set the pace, and how their season goes is going to determine one way or another who's going to win that title. But I, I think Spurs look, I mean, they look really solid, and all the areas you'd like to see them improve, I feel like, you know, the players who can do that are already on the team. So it's... I think it's exciting, and, and, you know, I don't know if this sort of Mourinho's taking advantage of, like, the fact that we run a less physically strenuous or complicated style, so in the year of COVID, we are sort of uniquely well-positioned to take care of it, but any other year, it maybe wouldn't be as good, but, you know, I don't know if it's sustainable, but it's working for now, and I would really like to see some dividends this year, because we do look really good, and... I think the fact that Chelsea were that afraid of us speaks to that. 
Yeah, I know this podcast hasn't suggested it yet, but we are. We're fucking top of the top of the league. And that is incredible. It's like the weekend ended and we were in first place and we get to enjoy that for a whole week. And, you know, in a week that Chelsea looked, like you said, scared of us and not that great. Liverpool were lucky to get away with a draw at Brighton. Um, you know, they're having an injury crisis ben, right now. how dare you? The- how dare you minimize the injustice that Liverpool suffered this weekend, that Jurgen Klopp has to live with every day to know that that happened to his team. How I dare you know minimize injustice that. we're talking about at this point. <laughs> There's just so many. Is it the playing on TV or is it the VAR? I can never tell. Jurgen Klopp is just like Mourinho with like teeth. I mean, he's just... With George Washington's wooden teeth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he is He is every bit... I, I think he is a better manager right now. I think his teams are more exciting to watch. But he is every bit as cynical as Mourinho is. And it, it just drives me insane that everyone thinks he's their fluffy uncle. It's... it's oh, it's What's a fluffy uncle? Like, you know, they're, okay, they're fun <laughs> uncle. I, I don't know. <laughs> like, he's just... <laughs> Do you have a fluffy uncle? Yeah, yeah, like yeah he's a teddy bear looking uncle is what I was trying to say. over there, like, squishing him... <laughs> Yeah, we don't. We, but we haven't talked about him in a few years. So. Okay, all right, all right. He's not invited to family gatherings anymore. But anyway, Ben, I totally derailed you there. I just, I just wanted to make sure that Liverpool. I, I want to. I want to talk about the fluffy uncle. <laughs> I think that is a way more salient point. Um. Yeah. Anyway, we're we're very good. But again, I, you. I think you said it. The solutions to our problems are are on the squad already. You know, if you look at this match and top to bottom, you'd say, you know, there's nine guys I feel very comfortable starting every week. And I have some question marks over Musa Suzoko and Steven Bergvine. And we know Giovanni Lo Celso is capable of slotting in. We know what we have on that guy. He was our best player last season. He's phenomenal. You know, the question is, is can we get him in and down on the pitch of the same guy? And then the other question is, is, is Bergvine going to live up to his potential? Or is Gareth Bale going to get back to his best? Is Lucas Moura going to be the Lucas Moura of Amsterdam more often? Can we get Delhi back into the squad or Vinicius into this team somehow? These are all like, very good problems to have. <laughs> right. Like, we we have a lot of answers to our problems in the squad. And I mean, it's just a matter it. of can we get it to happen? And Putting aside injuries, which is a big if, looking at the January transfer window, like, the only, like, I think, and again, please correct me if I'm missing something here. The only sort of no-brain, like, purchase I would like us to explore beyond any just general lottery tickets we feel like buying is I would like another defensive midfielder to back up Hoiberg. And, frankly, it looks like Skip is going to be that guy next year. I think he'll be in a rotation with Hoiberg next year. If, if by all I haven't watched him at all at Norwich this year, but I, enough people that I trust have that have said nice things that I think he's going to get a chance in that Spurs team next year. I don't think we're going to sell him right away. Um, if at all. Uh, so I don't even know if we want to do that because Skip's on the horizon. But defensive, like I back up for Horibier, barring injury issues, is the only sort of addition to the squad I would want to make in season. Yeah, I mean, especially seeing how much we're relying on him in Europa League games, as either as a substitute or as a random starter, he's just been, I think, just so crucial for us. And as much as I, if this was last season and Skip was on this loan, you know, I'd be happy to say, you know what, we got Skip coming in. Maybe he's going to do a job. Let's wait for that. If we're come to January and like a title is on the line, I do not give a fuck about blocking Oliver Skip's development. No, like, you know what we need to do in January? This is when you go buy some 31 year old 
defensive midfielder who's going to be past it in three years. Like, go get him, and, like, who gives a shit what happens next year? Right. Like, just, get, just get us over the finish line, you know. And, or if, it's, if the case is, like, sell Skip for $15, $20 million and buy somebody, I don't I don't. Yeah, and if Skip's as I, good I as he says, he can, guy. he can beat out some, like, guy we bring in to do a job for half a year. Like, Right, whatever that guy costs. If it's the difference between winning and losing a title, it is worth paying. Yes. You know, we're getting ahead of ourselves. We got a whole month before that comes into play. But you know, even even a center back, you know, Eric Dyer is somehow looking like a very good center back in a way that he hadn't for a while. Even then he was uh, still making some busted ass passes against Chelsea. But yeah, you're yeah, right. He had a very good game. I mean, that's really like I would love another passing center back. Because I think that's the thing we really missed this match was Toby's passing out of the back just Gives us so much. Being able to go long. Well, it's a good thing um, Toby's on the good horse placenta then, because it sounds like he's going to be back pretty soon. Yeah. But in a game like that, when we're struggling to get the counter going, we're struggling to move the ball upfield, you know, he just gives us another dimension that we just lacked. And that's something, maybe Dyer or Rodon are that in the future. I haven't seen it, but that's something we probably need. But you're right. I mean, by and large, this is a very good squad that could win the league. Well, and that was let's let's jump off of this Chelsea game for a minute. Let's talk about um, the Ludogratz match last week, which is, you know, there were a lot of interesting things on display there. Now, keeping in mind it's the Europa League group stage, it's Ludogratz, and you don't want to get too too carried away. Delhi looked decent again. It looks like. Mourinho, I, the positive view of this is Mourinho is trying to sort of rejigger how he's being used on the pitch. I do not feel confident in talking about what he's trying to do with him. But Delhi was good. Vinicius, I thought, had an unqualified, excellent performance. I, we had all these three youngsters who clearly aren't going to be ready for us this year. But there was a lot of promising shit on display in that match. And, you know, I mean, number one for me is I'd like to see Delhi get sort of integrated back into the first team squad. But... Very close after that is I want to see Vinicius in a league match. Particularly, I want to see Vinicius like on the pitch at the same time as Harry Kane, because I've been I don't know I, I thought Vinicius was just another sort of Jorge Mendes bargain at the beginning of the year. But I have and again it's the Europa League. It's a limited league minutes. I've been very very impressed with just what he does on the pitch this year. Yeah, I mean look. Ludogrets are several orders of magnitude worse than Tottenham Hotspur. I mean, we're talking, you know, League One. Well, it depends on what day of the week we're talking about, but fair point. Yeah. And so, you know, that being said, the 4-0 win was still very impressive. And like you said, you know, I was very encouraged by Delhi, by Vinicius. Um, You know, it was nice to see Jose give three guys – uh, young guys, their debuts, even if one of them was, you know, subbing off Joe Hart to bring on a goalkeeper. Oh, but didn't you see him um, clapping and high-fiving him? That was so adorable. I mean, it's just the ultimate, like, fuck you to Ludogorets, where it's just like, you know what? We're going to take off our goalkeeper and bring on a kid because you haven't had a single shot. Um, which which I think that was the interesting part of that game is Ludogorets had zero shots. Not just, like, no shots on target, just no shots. And I don't think I've ever seen that in a football match. Um, like I, 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 yeah, but yeah, it was bad. So, you know, look, it, it, it was, it was encouraging because you were getting the guys that you want minutes 
minutes. Like you, you want Vinicius to play. You want him to get up to speed. And so these were quality minutes for him. And not only were they quality minutes, but he scored a couple of goals. Delhi's the same thing. You want him to get used to whatever this new role you want him to play is. And he goes out there and he does it well. He gets an assist. Um, he probably could have scored a goal. And he probably yeah. could have scored a two goal of his own. Almost. I mean, he had that one deflected pass, and you know, he could have had two. Could have had two. So, I, I mean, I just, you know, I think that's the thing that's been good about the Europa League group stages this year is, you know, I would rather be in the Champions League, but we're using them in the way that we should, where we're not just. We're not only rotating our fullbacks. We're rotating with guys in the squad that need minutes. We're not, you know, running Harry Kane out there for 65 minutes can, can in we, Bulgaria. I feel like how Mourinho has used the squad this year has been sort of the biggest shock to me. Because Mourinho has generally been a guy who uses pretty tight, small squads and doesn't rotate a whole lot. And we have done a very good job this year of getting guys minutes. I mean, getting... You know, getting, I mean, we've really rested Kane in the Europa League, maybe not as much as we would like, but I mean, Kane's not running his ass off in the Europa League this year, which is a huge positive considering what he's done to his knees or his ankles in previous years. And, you know, and I, I mean, God, he gave three, I mean, I know we were beating the shit out of him at that point, and we have five subs to work with this year, but like, you know, giving Scarlet, White, and uh, was it Whiteman? Is that the goalkeeper's name? Yeah. Giving them all significant minutes. And the fact that White and Scarlett almost both probably should have had pretty impressive goals and played really well against the Middle East Ludogratz. It's like, I don't know. The fact that Mourinho is using substitutes and using youth players is just such a departure for me. Maybe it's just part of his like way to sort of insinuate himself with Spurs fans, but... It's still, I'm impressed because it's just not something I expect to see. And frankly, it's something Pochettino hadn't done for a while, if at all. Yeah, well, I mean, we haven't been in, in the Europa League for a while. And as much as I'd love to be in the Champions League, that is the benefit of having the Europa We've League. Played, not, like, not the not the last few years. We've played some pretty garbage group stages in the Champions League. I know it's different. I understand that. Right. But, but again, you know, you play a garbage team in the Champions League. It's like, well, that's three points I have to roll up because I might lose to Barcelona you know, at, at the end of this thing, and I need to take the points where I can get them. With this, you know, besides the terrible match against Antwerp, it's been a very good opportunity to get guys like Vinicius up to speed, to, like, give Gareth Bale opportunity to stretch his legs, to bring on the kids, you know. It's like we're in this year that is turning out to be, like, a potential title-challenging season, but it's also very much a transition year from the Pochettino regime to the Jose Mourinho era, and we have a lot of new bodies, and this is doing a really great job of trying shit out and allowing us, you know, if Delhi comes back into this team as that third attacking midfielder that I think, you know, is a job he deserves, um, it would not have happened without the Europa League. You know, like this is the opportunity that he has to reintegrate himself into the team that had we been in the Champions League, we would just be punting on Deli Alley. That might still be the case, but if it isn't, like this is why. You know, Vinicius is getting opportunities. We don't have to run Kane out twice a week. So we get to A, keep Kane very fresh for the league, which is a huge boon to our league performances. And it's also giving us opportunity to say, wow, this Vinicius guy is is way better than Fernando Llorente or Vincent Janssen or any of these other backup strikers we've had. Is it worth figuring out if we can get this guy in the pitch? Um and so yeah, this is I think has been just incredibly valuable. 
in terms of squad. I mean, Serge Aurier took Doherty's spot off the back of Europa League performances. Um, and you know, I, think and that, I think there's something really to be said for, I mean, giving these youth players minutes in those matches. And, like, you know, Scarlet and White did more than just show up and run around, which is what we've seen from some other youth players in the past. I mean, they... I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I know I am probably the one with the most vocal skepticism of prospects in here, but, like, I'm certainly looking at Scarlett in a different light considering how he played. For a 16-year-old, like, I was wildly impressed by what he did on the pitch in the short amount of time. I mean, I know it's Ludogratz, but it's, it's it was all an extremely positive experience. And like you said, Ben, I just think it's really encouraging and not something I would have expected out of Jose Mourinho that we're sort of, like, maximizing our presence in the Europa League. And I know it's going to change once we're in the knockouts, but it's still impressive that we've done what we've done in the Europa League this year. So you guys excited for Harry Winks to start playing Premier League minutes now that he scored that wonder goal? That's not going to happen. I... <laughs> so I will say, I turned Like, for Watford, on. you mean? Or, like... <laughs> I turned the game on as that was happening... And I saw just, you know, like a 50-yard chip. And I saw a goalkeeper in yellow stretching for a ball. And I was like, God damn it, Joe Hart, are you fucking kidding me? And then I realized who was wearing what jerseys and what was happening. And I was like, oh, okay, that's better. No, Joe Hart was too busy being adorable at the other end of the pitch with, with Alfie Whiteman. But yeah, what no. a leader of men. We, we, we've been doing a really, really good job this year at the Europa League. It's fun to watch. Honestly, it's like, I mean, part of the reason it's fun to watch is because we're just whooping the shit out of teams. And after last year, that's something I'm not going to take for granted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just and really he, want us to win this group, though. You should. Do you want to play Do you want to play Mauricio Pochettino's Real Madrid in the first round of the knockout stages? No, I don't. And so, I mean, so we yeah, Madrid's need to finishing beat... fourth. They're not falling into the Europa League. <laughs> they're, they're, not, they're not getting there. Yeah, I mean, we need to beat Antwerp when they come to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. That that'll be the decider. But I'd really like you know, we play Lask next, and Ludogorets aren't going to do us any favors and beat Antwerp. So yeah, you don't know. This is a really bad groups. So. I mean, Ludogrets have yet to win a game. I'm fairly confident that they're going to to beat Antwerp, that they're not going to beat Antwerp. So, Brian, I, I am dismayed at your skepticism and the magic of the Europa League. Yeah, right. Yeah, sorry. So, we have uh, a game that's mildly important um, this weekend. Uh, we have the North London Derby. We're playing Arsenal. Uh, ben, do you think we're ready for... Uh, Arteta's 33 headers or, or crosses or whatever the fuck. I am, the discourse around Arteta, I find fascinating. Everyone thought this guy was like building the next great free-flowing football team over at Arsenal. And they have been fucking dreadful this year. They were, they were dog shit against Wolves this past weekend. I mean, they are real bad. Yeah, so the, the 33 crosses, if you missed it, Arteta made a comment about how they took so many crosses, you'd think they'd have a goal. And it was just like, in a way that made it sound like that's their game plan is just pump in a lot of crosses, which is like the most old school, shitty English football nonsense. And not the kind of football you'd expect from like the protege who suckled at Pep Guardiola's teeth. Um, but yet, if you've watched any Arsenal this season, uh, it fits. They are absolutely miserable. Um, they're like a decently competent defensive side, and I feel and like they're what a lot of people expected Mourinho Spurs would be. 
this just not very good, dreadful defensive team. Yeah, but it's not that they're just defensive. It's like they have the ball a lot. They just don't know how to do anything with it. Like, unlike Mourinho, who we've talked about his aversion to midfield, Arteta is just, like, obsessed with midfield. (laughs) It's like the ball never needs to go into either third. As long as we can possess the ball in midfield, that's that's enough. Um, And it's just, they're just awful to watch. They're, they're, well, the thing that's great about it is not only is he... (laughs) Not only are they awful to watch, not only are they sacrificing future players by alienating them, not only are they investing in other, like, awful, mediocre players, they are also signing their terrible players to huge contracts right as they start to decline. So right as you're getting worried about what Arsenal's going to do with all that money that they're going to get in a few years when Ozil's contract, like, ends, you know, there's, like, Aubameyang falls off a cliff. I mean, they're just, God, they're, they're, they're fucking awful. And it's really quite incredible. And yeah, I mean, ahead, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, and their big signing, you know, Thomas party is out and hasn't played since the beginning of the month. That isn't coming back anytime soon. And this predates, um, Arteta, but Pepe might be the worst signing in Premier League history. Like he's awful. Certainly for, for for the amount they spent on him, it is just dreadful. Um, yeah, he got sent off last week, um, and that's unfortunate because that means we won't get to play against him. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, like, their big game changer is a child. Uh, Bukayo Saka is a teenager, and that is probably, like, their most exciting player right now. I mean, but the thing is with, you know, as someone that plays a lot of football manager, um, Arsenal's, like, young players have always been, like, very good, very interesting, very exciting. Like, you know, Joe Willick, Eddie Nketiah, you know, Saka, like, they've always had these guys, and they've just never had a manager that was like, ah, fuck it, let's just, you, you guys play now. They've always, you know, they bought. I mean, Arsene Wenger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean, he like, the kid. <laughs> yeah, he did. But I mean, like, it's in the post Wenger era. They haven't really bought into that, and they they've just, you know, they buy party for a ridiculous amount of money. Who who is very good, and I'm sure will be good for them at some point, but is out right now. They bought Pepe for a ridiculous amount of money, and that didn't work out. They renewed Obama Yang's contract. Like, I just. There's a lot of things at Arsenal that I just don't understand. And I'm really kind of happy that they suck now. Um, but it, I don't know. It, derby matches always make me nervous because if you're a bad team, these are the matches yeah. that you get up to. No, I, absolutely. Like, like at, the, My first thought after that Wolves match was like, fuck, we're going to lose to them, aren't we? Yeah, because look, you know, we spent years and years and years being this middling Premier League side with Arsenal being consistently in the top four. But we never and, beat them. Right, but but like, you were always up for that match, and so like you know the when when you have the the four four or when you have the one where Kabul gets the header to bring us back in under uh, under under Redknapp, and you you wind up winning that game, like like that's the kind of excitement that is around these derby matches. And right. when you're West Ham and you score a forty yard screamer in the ninetieth minute to to make it three three. <laughs> Yeah, that's all you're playing for. 
Yeah, that that is the stuff that these games are are, are about for the worst team. Like the better team is just like ah, we got to win this game regardless. But for the other team, you're just like ah, we're gonna beat our rivals because fuck them and we hate them. And you know that's it's the shoe has changed from it was Spurs who were you know had didn't have more to play for to now it's Arsenal who are just like don't even look like they will get a Europa League spot at this point. I mean, this is like, we have played Arsenal where we've been better than them, but this is definitely the most lopsided. I think this, this Derby match has been in our favor ever. I think and you're right. It's or certainly in our memory, in. in our living memory. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe in like the fucking sixties. Um, but like, even then I, I'm pretty sure Arsenal were not like terrible. They're terrible right now. And the pressure when you're the best team to beat the shitty team is a really uncomfortable thing to live with because, you know, we've lived so long in their shadow in a way that has been, you know, made it exciting when we do win. I I, I wonder how we're going to handle, you know, being in the in the driver's seat and, and having all the expectation that, like, we shouldn't just win. We should comfortably win. And we might not. And, like, that's a fucking scary thing. And I think not something I'm prepared to deal with. So before we talk about the actual match itself, I want to continue to sort of just focus on the, you know, sort we'll just of... just back on Arsenal somewhere. Yeah, no, the, the Baroque ruins that are Arsenal right now. Uh, ben, you have famously made the poor decision to marry an Arsenal fan. Uh, where where are... Her family is our, our Arsenal fans. Where are they in terms of the should we fire Arteta, uh, you know, scale? Because I think, and maybe I've just personally invested in this because I, I found a lot of the plaudits for him from, like, the English press last year to be ridiculously, early, like, just overwrought. So I find this all deeply amusing right now, and I think they're terrible. But do they think he's a fraud yet? Do, do they think uh, he just needs more time? So as a quick aside, I just want to say we just got a a shipment of Arsenal COVID masks arrived at our house today that that my wife felt like we needed in our lives. Is she trying and to keep I the just, virus out or bring it in to end her suffering? <laughs> what, what's going on there? You know, she wants to have the virus here, but like kind of like contain it in a safe space, not eradicate it. You know, not let it get a sick. Just sort of just gently let it, let it fester for three virus. or four years before you move yeah, on to yeah. another virus, like. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, I, it just made me fucking irate. Um, and I wanted to set them on fire. Uh, yeah, so, you know, I, my wife at least, like, listens to me because she's a good person. And a, you For, know, an so I, For an arsenal. When I say terrible things about Arteta, you know, I think she listens and considers that point of view. Um, the rest of my Arsenal-loving in-laws and their Arsenal-loving friends are definitely of the opinion that Arteta is a good manager who is being let down by the board, who saddled him with a bunch of bad players and haven't invested in the squad to the degree that he needs. And, like, I just don't know what it's going to take for these people to stop believing that this man is a genius being let down by... Mesodosal <laughs> relegation. I, I, I don't. I'm happy for it. Like I hope the board believes the same thing. I hope everybody thinks Arteta is the guy they need to keep backing. I mean, again, like we've seen at at Man U with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, them keeping him instead of signing 
Pochettino when that was an option uh, is very funny. And I long for all of these clubs to keep <laughs> sticking with that. Like Chelsea's squad is so good that I, I think we're lucky that they have a manager like Frank Lampard and not an actually good manager. Um, I don't think he's as bad as Arteta, but this predilection to like hire like kind of club favorites is doing a lot of teams a disservice right now. And it's great. And the fans are so blinkered by that love they have of them as a player that no one is willing to reckon with the fact that like maybe they could be doing better. Like I think there's a lot of problems with Arsenal squad, but I don't think it is a 14th place squad. Arteta spearheaded, like, for all the other construction problems they have, and there's a lot, like, Saliba, he is alienated, like, I mean, he's done a lot of dumb things. There's other players he's sort of alienated. He was one of the guys pushing for Aubameyang to sign an extension, where, I don't know, if I was running Arsenal, I'd be like, oh, Pierre, I'm so sorry you want to leave. Like, please don't go. Like, Please, I hate it. No. (laughs) Right. I mean, look, we say all this stuff about club favorites as managers, and we'll be singing a lot different tune in three years when Ledley King is in charge. You know, I honestly hope that never happens because I don't want to live up to the harsh reality that that's going to force me to face. Um, but I don't. Like, we'll have a management team of Ledley King, Robbie Keane, and Jonathan Woodgate, and we'll all be uh, miserable. That'll be a fun Scott, group to hang out with, but they probably won't win a lot of football gonna, games. We're going to see Scott Parker get relegated at Fulham, or or barely survive relegation at, at Fulham, and be like, "This is our guy." Yeah, there we go. So be like, "Well, you know what? He's really, really good at you know playing with a passing team that's better than competition in the championship. So maybe he would be good here." So speaking of this, let me let me hit a seamless transition here that I already tried to hit once and definitely didn't get picked up by the microphone. You know, Arteta's not shown, I think, the greatest recruitment judgment. I think it's worth pointing out, as Brian mentioned earlier, uh, Party's probably going to be pretty, at least decent for them. But Christian Eriksen has been linked with Arsenal. Now, I have made a lot of being a sort of jilted ex with Christian Eriksen over the last few years, but I think I would be pretty... Uh, my, my reaction to this are twofold. On the one hand, I'd be pretty fucking angry at Eriksen if he went to Arsenal, um, especially given that, like, we saw in the documentary, but I think actions also demonstrated Spurs desperately wanted to keep him around. So I'd be pretty mad if he ended up going to Arsenal. But I also have to say that, like, that Arteta wants him to join his glorious five-year project at Arsenal makes me think twice about whether or not Eriksson is actually still good and not just the victim of circumstance. It's so hard to look at the inter time and not think he's a victim of circumstance. But it's you're, you're talking about a year and a half, basic, right? About a year and a half worth of time where you take, you know, okay, you went in January. So no, no, no. I'm talking about back to his time at Spurs, where like you would argue, like, oh, Erickson hasn't been playing well because he's just not happy with his manager, whether it was Inter or at Spurs. And we're getting to the point where it's like, I don't know if that's all it is because it's been going on for so long. Well, he actually, he was playing well at Inter when he first signed, like pre-Project Restart. Uh, <laughs> that's just for you, Greg. Thank you. Uh, to work it in once no, every episode. You, my eye roll wasn't quite picked up by the microphone. There, so. In six years, we'll still be talking about Project Restart. 
just because it pisses you off so much. No, but he was good. I'm going to get t-shirts made for the podcast. He was good at Inter. Like, I mean, he had, you know, Lataro Martinez and, and Lukaku ahead of him, and he was feeding them very effectively. Like, he, he was, was he's good. been very anonymous to bad this year. Yeah, I mean, like, at some point, they dropped him, they dropped Skriniar, they dropped, like, a lot, like, Conte just sort of, like, reshuffled just his team. anybody associated with Tottenham. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was just like, I don't want that. I don't want that loser stink all over us. Uh, <laughs> joke's on him. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I'll mostly just be devastated. I think Erickson will be good at Arsenal. I think to a degree because Arsenal are so bad. But, like, you look at that attack right now and you even a shell of himself, Erickson, is going to be better than, yeah, like, I Joe Willock. I get bad. that he's going to help them, but I just – and I, I, hope, I really hope he doesn't go there just for the memories – I'm just saying, he's been mediocre to bad for like a year and a half on two different teams. And he's had issues with like three different managers at this point. I guess like arguably he didn't have an issue with Mourinho. He just wanted to get the fuck out of here. But like, what's that quote from Justified? You meet an asshole in the morning, you might have just met an asshole. You keep meeting assholes all day, maybe you're the asshole. Like, it's getting to the point where it's hard for me to believe it's just he keeps running into bad managers or managers who don't like him. I don't know. I don't. I. I cannot imagine that this you know weird little Danish man is an asshole. Um, I'm not saying he's an asshole. He just might not be. I think he might have declined. Maybe he's different. I don't know. Like he did everything I mean, Pochettino asked for all those years, and all of a sudden he was just over it. And maybe his body. Uh, what I say. What I mean by this when I when I say this is, I think his body might have finally broken down. I mean, maybe. I guess it's possible, but I. I just. I really do think the inter thing is is a circumstance thing, and I think you know the the end of the time at Tottenham Hotspur was, you know, everybody was not really playing, and and the early Jose Mourinho stuff was, you know, Jose didn't really like we saw in the documentary. Jose was like, ah, he doesn't do all the dirty work that I need. He doesn't do this. He doesn't do that. Um, doesn't really want it as much or whatever. Like, I don't know. I. I yeah, I think Jose recognized that he was going to leave, and he's like, well, "I'm not going to put any faith in a guy who's not going to be part of this team. Why, why build around a guy who's leaving?" Like, yeah. it makes plenty of sense. I don't know. I, I how would it affect you emotionally? Evaluating like, like the ability of Erickson, so much as I am concerned with just like, like just feeling sad. Yeah, seeing, seeing him, him in an Arsenal shirt would devastate me. That would be like, even though there's like some weird circular like they're taking our table scraps now it would be like kind of funny on that level but you know Erickson was part of the reason I was so bitter about how he just started dogging it at Spurs even though like dogging it because you hate your job is the most relatable thing a football player could do to me uh for me is uh you know it's just he was my favorite player at Spurs I think he was probably the best player at Spurs under under Pochettino I think even better than Eric than Kane and it's just God, it would kill me to see him in an Arsenal kit. It, it's just like, you know, whether or not he's good for them, it would just fucking suck to watch that happen. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's at least he's not going in, like, the prime of his life. It's not like he's doing a Soul Campbell, like, leaving for free, still at the peak of his career, and, and going to, like, kick our ass for the next four or five years. Um, but it is, like, out of my org you know, showing up at Spurs after his Man City stint, you know, I imagine how Arsenal felt like. He was a guy who, like, maybe wasn't 
as crucial to Arsenal's success as Erickson was for us. But it was still like a, a valuable and important and well-liked player. Maybe then knee slide erased a lot of those good feelings. But you know that like even if it, to the extent that it didn't, the second they saw him in a Spurs jersey, it was like, well, that's the fucking end of my goodwill towards Emmanuel Adebayor. Um, and yeah, I'm not really prepared to feel that towards like, you know, we've had guys leave us like Bale and Modric or whatever. And obviously Bale has done a lot to redeem that uh, in the last few months. But, you know, it, it's always sad to lose a guy like that who you still like, who still feels like they have more to give. We haven't really wrestled with somebody turning up on a arrival really since Seoul. I mean, Barbara Tava Man U is like, yeah, close it was well, not the same. It's not the Man same. U, like, who cares? Yeah. You know, Man U, like, again, like, we've seen our guys on other teams, and it doesn't bother you that much. This is like a real, and it's going to be a shitty feeling. I hope it doesn't happen. Even if even if he goes there and is just fucking dog shit, it's still going to be sad in a whole other way. I mean, right? Yeah, I mean, Vertonghen at Benfica really gets to me, honestly. <laughs> yeah, as a diehard Porto fan. Yeah, you know, as a you know, it's just really difficult. So, let's get off that depressing topic. Uh, what are you expecting? <laughs> Do you think we're going to have any trouble, Ben, with our sort of counterattacking style against Arsenal, given how they're playing such a sort of defensive shell? Or do you think we're going to, like, mix it up against them? Treat them like the fucking dog shit mid-table team they are? Yeah, I think that's a very good question about how Jose's approach is going to be. Is he going to treat them like a, a serious team that he has to, like, play conservatively against, whether because he thinks they're good or be, just because it's a rivalry match? Uh, or is he going to treat them like... They're, I don't know, West Brom, like <laughs> like he should. I, I don't know. I don't think anything inherent to Arsenal is, like, capable of stifling our counterattack. I mean, we've seen Harry Kane beat the shit out of Arsenal so many times that I'm really not worried about his ability to score goals. Uh, I'm just worried about some, like, narrative banana peel. Yeah, I really want to stick the knife in Arsenal right now. I feel like it's going to be very ugly for them if they get their asses kicked by us. Yeah, I want, like, a battering. I yes. want them to have to, like, look Arteta and themselves in the mirror and say, does everything I believe really make sense anymore, or <laughs> is my whole life a lie? Like, that's what I want from this game. This is this is not my beautiful stapler. <laughs> yeah, an- another 6-1, like the, or, you know, 6-0, whatever. You know, like the United match. That's, that's what I want. Yeah, I'll take any win. I just, given what, how things are going right now, and I just really want to just... Really fuck them over. <laughs> yeah, I'll be happy with a win. I'll take any win. I want a like just a destruction, like an evisceration of their soul. Yeah, I want Ben to have to go to. I want Ben to have to go to marriage counseling after this. I question. will go to marriage counseling. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, what are you guys? I mean, Brian, do you what? Do you have any expectations for what kind of match we're going to get, or is it just it's a derby match? Throw it out the window. I, I think I think it's the latter. It's it's throw it out the window because it's a derby match, and especially because, like we talked about earlier, Arsenal don't have as much to play for right now, and so I don't know how KG Jose will want to be with this match. Um, you know, if he decides to open it up a little bit and, and really go at him, you know, 
who knows how bad it could be. But, um, you know, the problem with these rivalry matches, especially in football and in the Premier League, is sometimes they don't live up to the hype. And and it's very rare that a North London derby or a a Spurs-Chelsea match doesn't have some level of excitement in it. But we just played a pretty drab derby match against Chelsea. And so, like, might we do that same thing against Arsenal where maybe we get a better result, but it's like a a 1-0 or 2-0 match where it wasn't really that interesting? Like, I think that's entirely possible. It's certainly within the realm of possibility that Mourinho and Arteta will find a way to play the, that soccer match from the Simpsons in real life. Yeah. And I mean, look, you know, we, we talked about, you know, Jose Mourinho ball is, you know, can we get a two, one win or a one nil win? And like, I think Jose would be very happy to walk out of a Derby match with a one nil. And would I, I mean, like Ben said, a win is a win and, you know, three points is great. And we beat Arsenal and that's all fine. But like, I'd really rather it be by three, four, five, six goals. Like, that'd be a lot more fun, obviously. Yeah, we just haven't really ground them into dust in a while, and I think we're due. <laughs> Can I think, think whenever think I get a big swing like this, we lose. So. I want to take a moment to appreciate this, because think about, let's, let's cast our minds back to 2010, where we had not won at the Emirates yet, and now we're kind of like, yeah, we're due to beat the living shit out of them. <laughs> like, Yeah. I mean, we are. What a time. I think just saying this and putting this in the world means we're going to lose and we're going to come back here and I'm going to have to be like, I don't know what went wrong. This shouldn't have happened. Jose's <laughs> terrible. With the pendulum goes in the other direction. Yeah, it's going to swing hard. I just don't want that to happen. Like, I'd like, I like the pendulum to stay erect. <laughs> <laughs> Your wife's got a real dilemma for next week. <laughs> yeah. She knows who butters her bread. She's good. <laughs> Well, on that note, I don't think we're going to go anywhere from there, so let's wrap it up. Brian, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Brian underscore Ashlock. That is Brian with a Y. Ben, where can people find your takes online? Oh, well, you can find me on Twitter at Comrade Uspurs. And you can find my super hot wrestling takes online at Skipjack0079. And, of course, you can follow our podcast at WDR Podcast. That's WDR as in Wheeler Dealer Radio. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. We've done this not once but twice in this podcast. I'm very proud of myself, listeners. I hope you're as proud of me as I am of myself. On that note, for Ben, for Brian, of co- for myself, and, of course, for Brett Rainbow, I've been your host, Greg. Come on, you Spurs. <laughs> <laughs>